on the shin angle, one thing I find that's quite useful for that with the, with the decelerations um, is just contrasting it with like a resisted acceleration uh, and then coming into an assisted deceleration. So using band assisted, um, I think it's a really powerful way just to get that feeling of the, 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 the positive shin angle during deceleration, you know, the ability to slow the movement down and get the athlete to feel that the braking forces on each limb um, and that's that. That's what I would call breaking steps, assisted breaking steps. Just slow the movement right down. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about deceleration testing and deceleration training. So this topic, and rightly so, is getting so much more attention. And it was recently highlighted by Damien Harper, who features in this podcast, at the Sportsmith Speed Conference this past weekend. And how important it is from a managing load point of view to reducing injuries, to improving performance in things like change direction, and acceleration or re-acceleration and things like that. So a really interesting topic when it comes to uh, area when it comes to deceleration. So in this episode, we've got Damien Harper, who I've already mentioned. We've got Ted Rath from the Philadelphia Eagles, and we've got Mark Jameson from Southern Illinois University. <clears throat> so we have a little chat around testing deceleration, what qualities are needed for the effective deceleration on the court or field, gym-based interventions to improve deceleration, and obviously on-field interventions to improve deceleration. So if this is an, an area that you want to dive in on, this is the perfect episode for you. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics Force Plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating Force Plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics Force Plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And also sponsoring this episode is Hytro. Have you ever tried blood flow restriction training? So for pro sport teams and athletes, Hytro is the only performance BFR brand to create pressure validated BFR wearables that are practical, safe, and scalable, allowing you to enhance recovery and maximize athletic potential like never before. Widely used by top flight rugby, football, cricket and motorsports teams already in post-game changing rooms, away game travel, hotels or at home. Hytro has proven that creating their simple and effective wearables allows BFR to be delivered to athletes and squads simultaneously and safely. To find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive edge, visit hytro.com or email the team at teamsales at hytro.com. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end -end experience by collaborating with organizations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. So without further ado, over to the episode with Damien, Mark and Ted. So deceleration 
becoming more and more prominent discussions, whether you talk to practitioners, whether it be social media. So hence getting you guys on to, um, to provide some information on the training and testing of deceleration, which I'm really looking forward to. So Damien, you're going to kick us off first. From a research point of view, what does it say? What, how important is de deceleration and what do we know about this topic? Yeah, cheers, Rob. Thanks for the invite um, onto this. It's a really interesting topic, I think. Um, I'm, I'm quite biased on, on that as well, I think, because I've been looking at this area now for probably seven or eight years. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a really important area, uh, one which has been largely overlooked in the past. And I think there is, like you said, um, over the next, over the last few years, really, I think there's been a big impetus on trying to trying to uh, drive some better understanding of this uh, task. Um, so I think it'd be useful, I think, for the listeners and and for, for me as well, just to, just to put across what I think deceleration is before we get into the importance of it. Um, I, I mean, when, when we look at deceleration from a movement outcome, we're, we're, we're typically looking at trying to improve the athlete's ability to reduce their speed with respect to time. Now, um, from a movement outcome perspective, obviously we want to try and increase the athlete's ability to uh, get higher rates of deceleration um, from a movement outcome perspective. But it's also important, and I think this is where it's really uh, interesting in terms of the element of braking as a, or deceleration as a movement skill. Um, so with deceleration, it is a really complex movement skill. And I think we've got to acknowledge that there is um, a real fine interplay between uh, the, the limbs in how we coordinate the limbs to be able to apply an effective braking force. So um, that ability to be able to coordinate the limbs, to be able to switch the limbs, uh, to be able to orientate the braking forces is really critical uh, to one, applying the forces, but then when, once we've applied the forces, being able to, and this is where deceleration becomes really important, being able to safely attenuate the forces um, during deceleration. So when we look at those two components, the movement outcome and the movement skill, uh, we've recently proposed a definition based on those two factors that deceleration should be considered as a, the ability to reduce momentum um, in accordance with the, ob the objectives of the task and the constraints while skillfully attenuating and distributing the forces associated with braking. Um, so we've highlighted those two key components that we're probably going to get into talking about during this uh this discussion because I think we've got the braking force control, the ability to control braking forces, but then also the ability to be able to attenuate those braking forces. And I think that's where, uh, you know, the, we start to get into the importance of, of deceleration from those two perspectives. So we've got performance element, but then we've got this injury risk element as well, which is where I think deceleration becomes really important. Um, so yeah, if we start to get into the importance of deceleration and why we need to train it, um, I always say it's important to start from, from the game perspective and look at the demands of the game. Uh, some of the stuff we did um, quite early on in, in my research, I, I found quite fascinating because what we, what we looked at was the game demands of accelerating and decelerating at high intensities. And what we actually found was quite surprising, actually, that um, in most team sports, when we monitored it with GPS um, above a high-intensity threshold, um, most team sports have great frequencies of decelerations, high intensity decelerations than, than high intensity accelerations. Uh, so, um, and that was that was in football, um, soccer, uh, most codes of rugby, uh, Australian football, hockey, uh, with the exception at high intensity was American football was the only sport which had, had that exception. So that, that was quite an interesting finding quite early on. Um, in my research, which identified that decelerations are really highly frequent. Um, and obviously those decelerations are obviously critical within, you know, the attacking and defensive actions within team sports. Um, so, I, you know, particularly from a, uh, you know, from a creating space perspective or closing space down perspective, decelerations are, are really, really uh, critical in that in that space because we can generate really high rates of change in velocity. Um, so, yeah, from a frequency, frequency perspective, very highly frequent. And then the other area which we look at with the game demands and the act, action of deceleration itself is the is the forces, the mechanical forces. And uh, this is where deceleration becomes really distinct. 
from other movement actions. Um, we could probably, you know, say that deceleration is probably the most um, mechanically demanding task from a force perspective, from a loading perspective. So if we're backwards engineering um, in terms of the demands, we need to we need to prepare athletes, team sport athletes in particular, for these demands, these high forces. Uh, we're looking um, with deceleration potentially up to six times body mass uh, in some of the uh, braking forces. Uh, and that's in really, really short periods of time. So you could be looking at less than 50 milliseconds. Um, so really high loading rates, really high magnitudes of forces uh, that athletes need to be able to, uh, one, produce, but then two, be able to, to, to tolerate those and, and, and attenuate those forces throughout the lower limbs. Um, so those forces are really high. Um, and obviously they repeat them very frequently. Um, and that was something which we put together in a model and, and, and said that, that that then generates quite high risk of tissue damage for athletes. And that risk of tissue damage um, can potentially alter the way the athlete moves during gameplay. So it can alter other movements that may be, may be important, such as sprinting, um, high speed movements, because they're trying to manage them, them deceleration forces. They're trying to protect the tissues from damage. Uh, so, yeah, I think from a forces and from a, a frequency perspective, if we can improve our athletes' ability to, uh, one, perform frequent high-intensity decelerations and then to be able to attenuate them and, um, and reduce tissue damage from them, uh, then we, we certainly were in a position where uh, athletes are going to be able to maintain speed and, and, and in attacking and defensive actions, be able to uh, be successful in those movements. Um, some recent work in soccer has shown that decelerations are highly frequent, for example, in, in preceding goal scoring opportunities. Um, and that's, you know, you can see that in like attacking movement players, uh, but also really important for defensive players as well, that they can obviously quickly respond to the opponent's movements. So I think really, really key for these, um, you know, match winning actions as well um, in, in many sports that we see. One question before I ask Mark about the testing of deceleration based on what you just said, Damien. Through your conversations with practitioners, based on everything you just said for the last few minutes, is deceleration getting the time in the program that it deserves? Or is it still, are we still understanding and it's still kind of this buildup of, of momentum, I guess, to, to have that integrated well within a program? Yeah, it's going to be definitely, uh, you know, sport specific as well. I mean, if you look at soccer, for example, in the UK, you know, small sided games, medium sided games, large sided games are, you know, very, very popular um, training methods throughout the micro cycle of the training week. And those type of activities do expose athletes to a high frequency of decelerations. Uh, however, I think what we perhaps um, haven't got as good a knowledge of is how we can actually um, improve the coordinative elements of, of, of the task and how we can perhaps improve the athlete's ability to perform those uh, decelerations um, outside of those type of um, you know, game scenarios as such. Uh, like we have had for acceleration, we've, you know, we've resisted um, acceleration work, for example, and, and other, other exercise types for acceleration. I think we've still we're still float, we're still kind of like developing knowledge in that area for deceleration, I think. Perfect. Thanks, mate. Just bring Mark into this and Ted, feel free to jump in whenever. Um, testing deceleration. Mark, what options have we got? Is this something, an area that is developing? From my experience, it's maybe something that was integrated within other tests, but now it seems like it's becoming a test within itself due to different tech being available. What options have we got in 2022 to uh, measure deceleration with our athletes? Yeah, I think the options are, are definitely growing. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it, it's interesting that, you know, Damien spoke on, you know, the safety aspect of, of breaking, you know, when you're determining breaking strategies. I think probably the vast majority of when we actually were trying to quantify or objectify breaking strategies and, and things like that was probably in the return to play process. Um, as you're slowly progressing those demands over time, um, not, not just the, the actual braking forces themselves, but the directional pattern of it, you know, what, what type of foot plant was it with, with those braking strategies? 
I think we did a lot of that in return to play, but I don't think it's been as popular in the team setting, probably because there hasn't been as much, I think, access to good technology or, or you know, a, a really efficient way to, to test in, in a full team setting. Um, yeah, it, the, the first thing that we look at, obviously, when we do any testing or assessments is what are what are the metrics that we're looking at that becomes actionable? What what are we what are we going to find? What are our key performance indicators for this movement that are actually going to help drive decision making process when it comes to the interventions or or the program itself? So you really what I look at like from a deceleration standpoint, um, you know, if, if you're going to do some some kind of assessment is what is the deceleration distance? What's the deceleration time? Um, you know, what is the rate of deceleration? That's a, a difficult thing to test. I, th I think now, uh, you know, we've been fortunate. We have the LedgeRack Pro device, which is a radar timing device. So it actually gives us the rate of deceleration. So now we can kind of see what the impulse, breaking impulse is. Um, and then early versus late. So like, again, is it is a safer strategy? So more time spent in that early deceleration? Um, or are they truly coming from a really high um, entry velocity and breaking really quickly? Um, so those are the things that we look at from a deceleration standpoint, but then you also have to look at most of our, our movements in sport is never a, a true dead stop. So a lot of it's built within change of direction testing, right? And we've always done, I think, 5105 and, and, and T-test and Elger, like all those have always been built in, but I don't think we've ever really looked at it as deceleration, right? We look at it as what's the total time? What's the speed of how you can, how you can do those, those tests or drills? We really need to look at, again, what are the breaking strategies how well do they decelerate and then what's their reacceleration look like? So, you know, we have our deceleration KPIs, then we have our reacceleration KPI. So what's our reacceleration time? What's the rate of, of acceleration during that reacceleration? Um, you know, and from a testing standpoint, in, in a team setting, it, it is a little bit more difficult, but the ADA test, obviously the Damien's done a, a whole bunch of research on, it's probably the easiest one to do in a full team setting because we'll just have a, a you know, your athletes sprint for 20 yards and they don't break until 20. And then it's really easy to track what was that deceleration distance. The time can be a little bit more difficult. Obviously, you're, you're probably going to need some kind of video analysis to, to determine what the true time of, of deceleration breaking was. Uh, but you're always going to have that deceleration distance. So, again, if, if I'm going to provide different interventions and, and make sure that they're responding well to that stimulus and they're actually improving, at least we can work off of are they shortening that deceleration distance over time. Um, that's easy to do in, in a team setting. You know, the, the difficult thing from a limitation standpoint is what was the entry velocity? That's a little bit harder to, to, to determine. Obviously, in a predetermined test, they know they have to break at some point. They're probably not going to hit their highest entry velocity. Well, what we found with our testing devices is when we do the ADA test, typically we're looking at 85 to 90% of peak velocities coming in. So it's, it's not a true max test. But again, you know, I think it's difficult to, to make it a max test when when there is a predetermined breaking um, spot. Um, so, you know, the ADA test, I think, is really easy to do. Um, you don't, for the most part, doesn't require a whole lot of technology. Obviously, if you have video analysis, if you have radar and things like that, timing gates will always help. Um, but a lot of what I really like to do from a, a deceleration standpoint is a 10-5 and a 15-5 change direction test. So 180 degree cut, start with the 10-5. Usually the, the, you know, Entry velocity is around 70 to 75% of their, their max velocity. Um, but we we see, again, from a safe strategy standpoint, it's, it's less breaking loads, um, less breaking forces. Usually we're seeing with our devices around negative 5, negative 10 feet per second squared as, as the, the, the rate of deceleration. Um, and then when we get to a 15-5 change of direction test, now we're touching, again, more closer to that ADA test, so around 85% max velocity. And now the, the rate of deceleration is much higher. It's kind of negative 10 to negative 15 feet per second squared. So pretty high. Um, and we can kind of dictate, again, what is the reacceleration pattern, right? What, what, uh, what movement strategy are we going to provide? And then take a look at what's limb-to-limb -limb symmetry on that. Um, are, there, are there any movement limitations in terms of a sprint to a backpedal, in terms of turn and sprint, crossover sprint, those different types of, of movement category selections that they have? Um, and limb-to-limb -limb on that. Um, to, to really determine, okay, what are the what are the buckets that we need to fill, or areas that we need to address from an intervention standpoint, um, and then a test that that I've really enjoyed that we just started to do again because we have that device is add a chaotic um, change of direction with a predetermined uh, deceleration test. So there's a, a master checkpoint setting that essentially goes out to 80 feet, so 26 yards, and what we'll do is when the device cues them, they sprint and they hit their max velocity. They don't know exactly when they're going to have to break and redirect back to the device. We'll give them that cue, whether that's auditory or visual. 
But what we've seen is closer to 95% max velocity on that brake itself. So those impulses are significantly higher. Um, and I think we get a pretty good indication of what their probably max potential of deceleration is from that. And it's usually somewhere between that, you know, 15 to, to 26 yards. And then when they uh, sprint back, they'll actually try to decelerate exactly on what the checkpoint or start position would be. So we get that change of direction plus a true deceleration in the same test. Um, and we've seen uh, significantly higher max velocities going into it. Um, so again, I can I can compare that with the 15.5 and things like that. Really, just determine where are the braking strategies. Um, and and I think that really helps us if we if we know what our key performance indicators are for those. What are the again interventions that that we'll discuss later? What are the interventions and why are we doing those things? Because you know to your your question, I think of Damien, are we are we training this? I don't think we train it as much as we should because it, it is a really important aspect uh, in all of, of team sports. Um, but I think it's because we we're not fully sure what we're looking at and we, we haven't really figured out the best way to truly look at it and, and assess it. With those percentages of, of max velocity, if it if it doesn't hit that specific benchmark, are you voiding the test? Is that are you going that far? I mean it's I haven't built enough data yet on that. Um, but again it's because the hard part with the with the newer test that I'm doing where it's a, more of a chaotic cut with a predetermined you don't know it, the distance is always going to be variable, um, which is a huge limitation. But I know the entry velocity. So ideally, if I can if I can get as close to to above ninety percent of an entry velocity, I think it's a it's a relatively valid test. Um, so I think that's probably the, the hardest part, though, is like, you know, if if they hit eighty five percent, do I really look at it? Because again, it's a lot easier to break quicker. The deceleration distance is probably much less because the entry velocity is much less. So. Yeah, it's, I, I have to really figure that out. But so far for that test, if it's if it's below ninety percent, I'll just void that um, and make sure that it, that it's at least at, at a ninety percent max velocity to to be relatively valid. You kind of answered it, but I had to follow up on that one, Rob. So, Mark, when you're doing that, how much strategy change do you see between say eighty percent entry and ninety percent? Significant, I'm sure, but way less than seventy percent to ninety. So right. 90% is a good cutoff, but is there any justification? Maybe it's 85, maybe it's 80. How much is that? How much is that strategy changing? I mean, the strategy changes, I think, quite drastically. Like in a 10-5, you really don't lower your center mass too much. Like the total range of motion on the on the braking strategy isn't isn't really great. But then you look at that where they're hitting closer to 90, 95% of their entry velocity, they really have to drop their center mass to 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 receive and, and break those those forces and redirect them. Um, so you see a huge level change um, and it's, it's significantly more sporadic. And I think because when the, on the, especially the chaotic version, you start to see, I think more poor kinematics because again, they don't know when they're going to break. So they're not preparing for it, but you see a lot more excessive forward trunkling. I mean, they're just throwing, throwing their, their, their torso way out in front of their center mass to try to decelerate, which obviously is going to lead to higher risk of injury. Um, but that's good to know because now we can hopefully address it a little bit better um, in, in whatever kind of, intervention or, or drills that, that we'll use to, to try to train that. Is there, and you mean, I know you said about the incorporating video into, into Damien's uh, ADA, but is with deceleration more than any other quality, is the, the qualitative aspect just as important as putting a number on it based on their ability to not only decelerate, but, but reaccelerate as well and be in a position to be able to do the next most important thing, I don't know, chase a defender or, or go and attack. I think so for sure. I mean, that's, that's the vast majority of the movements that we make in a team sport setting. It's never just like this straight from a static start linear acceleration. You're always coming out of, and I think, you know, like transitional movements, right? So coming out of a defensive jockeying position, then accelerating, then breaking and redirecting, you know, as, as Damien talked about, you know, creating space and closing space from a change direction standpoint, you know, those are probably the predominant movement actions that they see in the sports setting. So the, the kinematics and, and how you're actually moving within those, I think are really important that we should continue to, to track and make sure that we're improving those because over time, those are going to be those, those huge energy leaks where we're going to see uh, a higher increase in injury risk. If, if those movement patterns are really inefficient and we know they have significantly higher braking forces than acceleration does. Um, and they continue to get high frequency and exposure to it. Um, yeah, we really need to make sure that, you know, I think video is, is, is probably the king from that standpoint, because we can look over time and make sure, again, are, are they responding well to the, to the intervention we're providing? And are we putting them in a more advantageous position to, 
receive these demands, you know, repetitively. Well, thanks, mate. I'd just love to get Ted in on the testing question as well to see if there's any specific tests that you, you've used in your current setting or previous settings on uh, to, to get an idea of your, the quality of your athlete's deceleration. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll start with thanking you, Rob. Just really appreciate the opportunity to be here, especially with these guys. This is awesome. Really, really respect both these guys. So it's cool to be on here. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, obviously, from a force plate perspective, there's things you can do. Now, that's a vertical plane, depending on what type of force plates you're utilizing, if you get the horizontal component. For us, we've utilized a lot of stuff from that standpoint, just to look at rate of force development eccentrically, looking at breaking impulse and some of the things that Mark alluded to. There's a thousand things you can pull from and detract from that. Uh, other devices like the 1080 Sprint, Leads React has a great new device. So you look at some of the things that you can get from a true braking component. Those are all things that we found value in, just like anything else. Are you getting 100% from one thing? No, never. But also are those little keys and little things that we can put into the bucket? Absolutely. But those are some of the devices that we found a lot of value in. You know, even using gym aware with certain components and, and making sure that we're looking at specific speed variables of specific movements within the weight room too, Rob, I think you can pull a lot of things from some of the technologies out there that are available. Well, thanks, mate. I'll, I'll come back to you in a second with the with uh, the question that I uh, fired over to you. But Damien, from a research point of view, when it comes to testing, is there anything that is out there that has got any kind of bulk research behind it when it comes to diesel or not? It's quite thin, Rob, to be honest. I mean, just, just on the back of what Ted and Mark have just been uh, discussing as well there, I think one of the most important elements when we're considering any kind of test is to ensure that we can obviously reproduce that and we can get reliable data. Um, and that's one of the pitfalls I think we've had previously with deceleration as well, particularly from a measurement perspective, that the devices that we've been using haven't been sensitive enough to capture such high changes in speed. You know, so I think that's where the new technologies that Mark mentioned about the LEDs react and a lot of the radar laser, laser technologies, the 1080 sprint offer new opportunities, I think, to be able to get the deceleration values reliable um, and repeatable with your athletes as well. And I think that's really key. If we want to monitor changes in athletes' deceleration qualities, we have to choose metrics which are uh, the most reliable and, and can detect the smallest changes in the athletes, uh, you know, improvements in their deceleration capabilities. So that's where, you know, some of, some of the work I did within the research perspective was to try and come up with a test that was reliable and could be reproducible. Um, and, and that's where we found like metrics like average deceleration were probably some of the best metrics in terms of reliability. Um, because it had the smallest variation uh, from test to test. So I think that's really important because some of these tests I see with deceleration, where we start to try and make things highly specific to the game, we completely lose the reliability and the ability to repeat that test. Um, so it becomes a pointless exercise, in my, in my opinion. Um, so I think that's where the, the ADA test, the acceleration deceleration ability test, allows us to get a re reproducible uh, entry velocity of the athlete very, 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 um, very, very, within a very uh, small threshold. So we're looking at, um, you know, with, with, with the research we did, if we had a 5% cutoff from, from, from uh, the 20 meter normal sprinting speed without a deceleration, we were able to repeat the speed within a, like a CV percentage of around about 2%. So we're getting very, very reproducible uh, entry velocities and distances when the athlete starts to decelerate. Now, as we mentioned before, the entry velocity completely changes the deceleration strategies. And, and that's where it's, it's really difficult with deceleration and it's a much harder task than what we've had with acceleration to be able to get a reliable deceleration assessment of the athlete. And I think just summarizing what I talked about, we can do that in a linear task um, or we can now, some of the work I did recently with um, Ola Erikstrud at the 1080 sprint, we were able to um, show that the 1080 sprint during a 505 was uh, providing very valid results compared to a 3D qualysis motion cameras. So we're able to get, um, you know, really accurate velocity data coming in and out of the change of direction. Um, and then be able to identify the phase specific information, which is what we want with the deceleration 
um, and the importance of being able to get the, the peak velocity of the athlete, the moment when they start the deceleration, I think that's, that's critical for any, you know, um, any reliable assessment of deceleration uh, capability, the, the ability to know when the athlete has started to decelerate. Um, so yeah, I think the, the research is certainly increasing in that area um, with the more technologies that are becoming available. And I think that will that will be a big area, I think, in the in in, in the future, uh, once we get more people utilizing that and trialing um, these these tests out with their athletes. Um, I think one last point I would make, and you know, there's a lot of discussion around, you know, we shouldn't be making athletes faster without knowing what their deceleration capabilities are, or don't speed up an athlete that can't slow down. Well. For me, that's where I think it becomes quite powerful because we can start to look at the ratios between their acceleration and their deceleration capabilities to, to get some kind of understanding of where the tra maybe training deficiencies are um, and whether they, they can slow down what they can speed up. Um, you know, an example of a cheetah there, you know, some of the some of the work that was done with cheetahs found that they had a 60% buffering capacity above their acceleration. So their deceleration was 60% greater than than their acceleration capabilities. So for me, that, that, that's, that, that's quite interesting. I think that, that is going to vary massively with different athletes in different positional roles, that, 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 um, that ratio of axel to decel. Were you going to dive in there, Ted? If not, it's fine. Yeah, Damien actually touched on it because the difference between some of the motion capture technologies and, and obviously what we're able to do with like 10A Sprint and even a guy you've had on here too, Rob, J.P. Brand, you look at some of the things he's been able to do with the 1080 in an ideal world, you strap them to a 1080 or a leads react and you run them into a motion capture system because some of the new cameras that are about to come out, some of those 8k cameras, uh, Kinetrax is a company that's coming out. They're doing a lot of stuff in baseball. That's got incredible potential. You look at that in an ideal world, because going back to another point Mark made, what is this? What's the ultimate goal? What are we trying to accomplish with deceleration? Well, once you decelerate, you're attempting to decelerate, control your body, in opportunity to go into your next movement, which is the next most important movement. So for me, getting them into that position, being able to see that, see the sequence, see joint angles, and then it goes into a thousand different rabbit holes. We just increased this athlete's dorsiflexion by 10 degrees. Okay, what angles is he allowed to get into now? What's the center of mass look like coming in and out of this cut? So I think as you start to look at the technologies and the testing opportunities that we have it's exciting to think about what's coming but we got to get a handle on where we're at right now and those guys make great points to that so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with damien mark and ted so in part two we have a little chat around our big chat around gym-based interventions to improve deceleration and also on-field interventions to improve deceleration so really interesting part two coming up This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. Also sponsoring this episode is Rewire Fitness. While we all know it's important to develop athletes' mental skills, it's often challenging for coaches to figure out how to apply these strategies. So Rewire Fitness is the ultimate coaching solution for helping athletes develop their mental fitness and gain an advantage over competition. The platform integrates evidence-based tools backed by neuroscience and sports psychology, as well as protocols used by NASA and the Navy SEALs to help athletes enhance mental performance and improve readiness, recovery, and resilience. 
With daily insights into each athlete's readiness, you can identify trends, prevent overtraining, and make informed recommendations with ease, resulting in improved team performance. And they have the data to back it up. Typically, their users reduce their self-related stress by 70%, feel 30% more focused, and feel 30% more ready for performance with just five to 10 minutes of use each day. By implementing Rewire in your coaching practice, you can also support a culture of health and wellness, proactively working to prevent athlete burnout and overtraining. Prioritizing mental wellness and performance is key to success of any team, and Rewire Fitness is the solution to achieve it. Learn more and schedule a demo at rewirefitness.app forward slash Pacey. And now back to the episode with Ted, Mark, and Damien. Just before we dive into the kind of technical aspects and how we actually improve it, Ted, physical qualities needed to decelerate effectively on the field or court, I think is probably a nice place to start before we jump off into actually how do we develop the, the two aspects that Damien talked about at the start. Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at deceleration, what's the ultimate, what is the factor that controls a lot of it? It's motor control. What's your ability to control your center of mass? Just like what we're talking about. You could have limitations because of joint structures. You could have limitations because of strength deficits. So for me, it's the opportunity and the ability to decelerate your center of mass and to properly put it in the correct position for your next movement. Once again, what's the goal? deceleration the goal is to get you into position so that you can re-accelerate and apply force into the ground in whatever direction you're attempting to go and it could be through an opponent or it could be into a direction in air so for me your ability to decelerate your own forces your ability to break get into the proper angles with that comes eccentric strength variables obviously you have to be strong enough you have to have the ability to exert force into the ground at the proper angles at the proper time there's a sequencing component so now neuromuscularly what's your efficiency pattern do you understand how to control your body weight in multiple angles once again uh when you look at how many times in a, in a football game american football or in a soccer match how many times does an athlete run exactly linear and just have the opportunity within five yards to break? Not often. So you look at that, it's multi-directional. It's your ability to create and reduce force in multi-directions. So for us, it's that over and over and over again. And then we throw in the component with other athletes. You have to also have the eccentric strength capabilities to decelerate an athlete who's trying to accelerate through you effectively. So now there is a concentric force component. There's a relative strength component. Now it's just not body weight, but on top of that, when you throw in the other variables of sport across many disciplines, those are some of the things that are obviously hugely important for an athlete to have when we're talking about deceleration. So we talked about eccentric strength there. I don't want to make this an, an eccentric strength kind of roundtable, but it seems such a such an important aspect for this topic. Ted, when you try when you're developing eccentric strength in the gym with deceleration as the kind of reason why that that that's there in the first place, what does that look like? Yeah, great question. Again, I think some of the things that you're looking at, Rob, are obviously just your ability to control loads eccentrically. So with that, there's there's tempo training that you can do. There's a thousand different things that you could do from a purely eccentric loading standpoint, but also the opposite end of the force velocity curve. You have to be able to control weight and load, whether it's your own body weight or something through an implement like a Kaiser power squat, rapid eccentric braking technology. So for us, we'll actually put them in a Kaiser power squat and have them break fast rate, but you got to be able to control the load and then we can progress that load. Then we can track how they're turning that on if we really want to go through it and then draw it back into a reacceleration phase, whether it's a unilateral exercise, we could go back into a unilateral squat, for instance. So for me, there's an opportunity to reduce force and actually reapply that, which again is the ultimate goal of deceleration. Get yourself in a position with the ability to overcome the resistance or the load and to reaccelerate through something else. The other thing, I mean, we start very, very basic when we start our programming, we just completed our off-season training program. For us, we start very, very basic and simple with controlling your own body weight. So we're, we're going back to wall drills so we can start statically. Then we're progressing into plyometric progressions where we are jumping, but we're also we're locking in and efficiently loading, but then receiving force. So for us, it's sticking landings in unilateral directions, multi-directions. How do you land on one limb? How do you land on two limbs? from a lateral cut or from a crossover movement? How do you decelerate on one leg if we have to stick you into a cut angle? So we're starting very, very basic and teaching our athletes 
how to receive force through their own body weight. Jump over a mini hurdle, show me your strategy and show me how you can control your center of mass when you're just landing on one limb. So for me, we start very simple with that. And that's a lot of the ballistic eccentric stuff that we do. And then obviously we can progress that, whether it's with loads, different heights, different movements or different angles where we're coming out of a movement or going into a movement, Rob. Perfect, thanks mate. I'd love to get Mark back in. From a gym, uh, gym interventions, gym-based practice, when it comes to the transference of that to, to improve deceleration ability, what what's your where's your mind go when it comes to the programming side um, in the gym? I mean, I'd say really similar to Ted's. I'll say, you know, I think you, you do have to really start basic um, in, in terms of the patterns and then build and progress in terms of specificity. So we'll do a lot of like from a plyometric standpoint, you know, work through lower elasticity, then work in more reactive strength and, and then higher shock method type eccentric loading. Um, but then I think you really have to get into trying to mimic what those change of direction angles look like. So a lot more, I think, unilateral plyometric exercises, um, try to progress the, the actual eccentric load. So whether that's, again, dropping off of higher boxes onto a single leg and having to redirect or adding load to those things and, 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 and those patterns. Um, what we really utilize uh, quite a bit is our, uh, our K-boxes, iso-inertial training. Um, we've, we found really high success with that. And, and again, it's really nice because we can track with the K-meter, um, like VMAX Pro you can put on there as well to try to get some better metrics or data on it. You can, you can really mimic, uh, you know, in terms of just a squat pattern on the K-box, you can mimic what the unweighting um, and, and breaking RFD is on a counter movement jump with uh, the K-box. And we can see that those those are relative relatively the same newtons, um, and then you have to redirect those. So, you know, I, so I think Damien's point of where that that deceleration ability has to be much greater than your acceleration. Um, you know, we're we're hitting 120 percent um, greater eccentric peak powers on on our isoinertial training compared to the the concentric outputs. Um, so we really utilize that. It's super user friendly. It's really easy for the kids to understand and learn. Obviously, you're not going to start with those methods right off the bat. But once we feel pretty confident that they've mastered and they have high competency of those patterns, try to put them in, in ice inertial training, full range of motion to start, because obviously you're going to have slower speeds and, and obviously less um, eccentric peak power from that standpoint, and then make it more joint angle specific to those various change of direction patterns or, or movement categories. Can I throw this your way as well, Damien? Yeah, yeah just just some some echoing the points on the eccentric strength i think you know that that's something we highlighted um in a in our recent review on on the biomechanical and neuromuscular requirements of deceleration that there's certainly you know specific eccentric strength qualities that are needed for deceleration um and we highlighted eccentric peak force eccentric velocity and eccentric um breaking rfd or eccentric deceleration RFD. So training strategies in the gym that can target those qualities, I think um, are really, really important. And, and you know, Mark and Ted have touched on, on a, a good number of good examples there. Um, I'm also a big fan of, you know, flywheel uh, technology to be able to um, give that eccentric overload. Um, and I think that's that's a key part of the training strategies, that eccentric overload element um, to, to, to try and get that, added uh, eccentric um, to augment the eccentric forces and increase the ability for that, for that athlete to be able to resist and control those eccentric um, movements. So I think flywheel for me is quite a specific stimulus there because the athlete's trying to resist that downwards movement. Uh, whereas normal traditional load, you're trying to control the movement, more controlling that movement down rather than trying to resist it, which is quite specific to deceleration. So I think the flywheels um, also have the advantage of, of being able to load horizontally. If you've got the pulley devices, we, you can do some really fantastic braking exercises there in the horizontal plane as well. So I think that's really important from a, from a gym-based perspective, the combination of horizontal and vertical loading. And um, like we've been saying, it's a multi-directional element as well. So being able to you know, increase the eccentric load in the, in, in the lateral and and, and the frontal plane is important as well, I think, um, for the athlete to develop them qualities, them eccentric qualities. Um, another um, training intervention, I think I'd just mention specifically here, I think, uh, which has got some 
I think some, some nice applications for deceleration is the isometric loading um, strategies. So I think um, the isometric yielding um, or quasi-isometric loading movements can be really powerful for deceleration, particularly for targeting the tendon structures. And I think for deceleration, the tendons are really, really important. Uh, the connective tissues are, are that first line of defense. So they're really important for, from a buffering perspective. So how we can improve them uh, connective tissue qualities through isometric training, I think a, a real, could be a really powerful stimulus for deceleration. And you get a similar kind of eccentric loading with some of the isometric yielding exercises if we go for the long duration holds as well, where we can perhaps increase the ability for the athlete to uh, kind of like yield yielding capacity to be able to resist that um, deformation. Um, so your isometrics and then going across the spectrum, um, you know, your yielding exercises for me will be down at the more the, the, the fundamental, the, the, the elementary, but then as you start to move up and you start to get more neural based, I would start to think about some breaking isometrics as well, where we can, where we can target some of the breaking specific positions and we can start to do some of the more fast isometric or um, explosive isometric actions and target, you know, interlimb breaking um, positions uh, using overcoming isometrics. Um, so that's, you know, I've certainly been inspired by some of Alex's stuff on that with the, the running isometrics and just trying to flip that and, and think about how that can apply to breaking. Breaking isometrics is what I've referred to it as. Um, so yeah, I think those two components and, 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 and I mentioned, as we've been saying about eccentric landing control, basic landing exercises and uh, reactive strength as well being a, a really key quality for deceleration. Um, because of that pre-tension and that ability to pre-activate the muscles prior to contact with the ground. So yeah, reactive strength, uh, isometric strength, um, really important qualities as well there to develop in the gym. Yeah, I'll jump, on, I'll jump on that too, because I think I don't want to gloss over the importance of the isometrics because that's a great point that Damien brought in. This, the first thing that we do after a season and we start ramping up our early off-season training, we go straight into isometric strength. And it's for exactly that reason. The connective tissue, the tendons, they have to reset after a grueling six-month season, maybe a month or two off. And then we start to slowly progress back up. And then the first thing we do in our true off-season we're putting them in positions of lateral loading, of unilateral loading, of linear loading in deceleration specific positions. So it's against a wall, but you're in your cutting position. And now we can load you isometrically and then we can progress into eccentric movements. And then after we get you to a point where we feel that you are adequately prepared, now we're going to go ballistic. We're going to start to do jumping to loading to landing and then redirecting. And then we can work reactive strength and we can work into some of those components. But I think it's important to note you know, the timing of all those things, everything has a purpose and everything should be married to that season, but keep the main thing, the main thing, the first thing that we do, train for the joint and the tendon health, make sure that that's ready before you progress to the next stage. Cool, thanks mate. Just a bit of a reminder, we're getting to the kind of last 10, last 15, 20 minute area. So if anyone's got any questions, fire them in the chat or the Q and A, if not, we'll just plow on through. One thing that I think is, the, is really, really interesting on this topic and it's the yes it's the on-field interventions but it's the the technical improvements like mark said like damien said like you've all said how important that is so i'm going to come to you first mark i know it's a big it's a big area and it didn't be difficult to to showcase without visual examples but when it comes to making technical improvements is there any go-to's that you would uh recommend coaches uh, use with our athletes when it's trying to develop them technical aspects of deceleration, high frequency, high exposure to it. Um, I've seen it because it is so demanding in a, in a sub maximal setting. So a lot of times, you know, we'll, we'll keep our, our high days, high days and our low days, low days. Um, but on a low day, it's, it's really easy to, to do a lot of sub maximal change of direction work. Um, and as you're teaching that, you know, we'll put our athletes on, on heart rate monitors and, and make sure that we're in that kind of zone that we want to be in. Uh, for, from a training perspective for, for conditioning standpoint, um, but we'll expose them to all the different cutting patterns, all the different change of direction patterns. And every time they only go out about four yards or five yards and they have to stick every single, um, every single um, plant essentially and hold that position 
then we can coach that position. You're also getting some kind of isometric exposure to that. Um, so, so you can kind of work on some, some force at zero velocity when you redirect out of that, that angle position um, from a change direction standpoint. Um, but you can coach a lot. They get a lot of high exposure to that. Um, we, we have what we call 4812. So you'd, you'd sprint to four yards, you plant stick on your right leg, you backpedal back to zero, sprint to eight yards, plant stick on your right leg, backpedal to four, and then you go out to 12, plant stick on the right leg, backpedal to eight, and then sprint through. We can do that on a whistle. It can be cadence and we can really coach it. And we get as a coach can see those different patterns, those different angles to make sure, again, we don't have excessive trunk lean. We can make sure there's not this huge deviation of center mass as they roll through from a, a plant position. If they stand straight up to backpedal, that's obviously not, not a very advantageous position to be in. Um, and then you're redirecting that center mass. That's just energy leak after energy leak. So um, really fatiguing from that standpoint. So um, that's a go-to for us. We do that, you know, sprint backpedal, shuffle, uh, turn and sprint, crossover sprint, or lateral run positions, um, and, and just really stick every single plant, you know, at the four, the eight, and the 12, uh, to be able to see those angles, um, to be able to coach those, and, and get more of that, that just kinesthetic awareness for those athletes. Because um, if you do everything fast, they have no idea. You say, how'd that feel? Or, um, you know, did you feel like you had control and you could redirect in any position from, from where you're currently at? Do you, have, do you feel like you have control of your center mass? They have no idea if it's really fast. So if you slow it down, they're more aware of it. You know, I just see it as the motor skill continuum, right? There's always that subconscious dysfunction. Can we make that a conscious dysfunction? Can you at least be aware of you're probably not in the best position? Here's what that position should look like and feel like, and then continue to expose them to that. I think it's probably the most important thing we can do. Ted, bringing you back in. From a technical aspect, and Mark's mentioned a couple there, uh, excessive trunk lean being, being one major one. Is there anything, any other technical aspects that you're drilling in with you guys when it comes to effective deceleration? Yeah, same thing. I think coming back to putting them in a proper position, because once again, our revisit center of mass, we're trying to isolate where the center of mass should be in those moments of rapid deceleration. So for us, we start so that they can feel, learn the position, and also anatomically, we're strengthening the structures and the musculature that's going to be called upon to get them in that position. So teach them what that position feels like. And then when you can get them into a situation like Mark's talking about, you progress in a movement, but then utilizing something like video to actually back it up. So we'll do a lot of that, whether it's Dari system or even just capturing on an iPhone on an iPad and saying, all right, let's go through this. And it could be a submaximal effort, but having that quick response where I hold up an iPad, walk them through it. And I'll say, remember the wall drill that we did last week. Remember what that position felt like. Look at your upper body lean. Does that look like the same angle that we were in? No. Okay. Let's reproduce that one. Let's redo it. And let's get you back into it. And usually most of our athletes these days are visual learners, just like me. And most of us all are, they go through that rep and it's cleaned up at least within 50% that next rep. Then you rep it again. It's usually cleaned up even more. So for me, using that video evidence to show them what the position is, but it starts with the education of get them in the position, teach them what it feels like, make sure that they ingrain that, bring in a neural pathway of what does this feel like? What is activating? What does my musculature feel like from this position? And then produce that again at a submaximal rate. And then eventually you're going to produce that at a maximal rate. I'd say for, for us, from a coaching cue standpoint, to your, to your point of like, what are we looking at? What position do we want them to be in? We probably cue and coach the shin angle more than anything else. Because obviously you need, you need your base of support outside of your center mass to create a direct line of force to the, to the direction that, that you're going to go. Um, so, you know, we always make sure they understand what a neutral shin angle is. So completely vertical, what a positive, so positive being in the direction that we know we're going to go because it's a predetermined drill. Um, and then obviously a negative shin angle where they have to can, um, they're in a disadvantageous position to receive those breaking forces. And then it's going to take them significantly longer and more energy to, to redirect back to that positive position. So shin angle is a big one that we, that we really coach. And, and I think athletes respond well to. I think that's probably the most important one too. To Mark's point, you got to coach it and how we we overcoach that intentionally. So when you're in the weight room, if we're doing a lateral lunge, I'm talking to you about your shin angle because I want you to understand that terminology. So when I do get you into a cutting position, you understand. Remember what we're talking about shin angle. Where's your knee in relation to your foot? All right. How does that feel? And how did you hip hinge into that? Where's your hip at in relationship to the knee, to the ankle? So for me, it's all about the shin angle. And if we're doing a squat pattern, if you're on a belt squat, vertical shin angle this is what that feels like continuing to replicate those terminologies and those verbiages every time that you can i've found a lot of success and that's killing them with the same words that we're going to bring into the movement 
I think. Cheers, guys. Damien, last but not least on this, from a research perspective, I know you were nodding along there when it comes to the, the shin angle from Mark and Ted. Yeah. Anything yeah. else? Yeah, just on, on the shin angle, one thing I find that's quite useful for that with the, with the decelerations um, is just contrasting it with like a resisted acceleration uh, and then coming into an assisted deceleration. So using band assisted, um, I think it's a really powerful way just to get that feeling of the 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 positive shin angle during deceleration you know the ability to slow the movement down and get the athlete to feel that the braking forces on each limb um and that's that that's what i would call braking steps assisted braking steps just slow the movement right down really heavy assisted pulling um so it's slow movement but it's forcing the athlete to feel the brakes and to feel that that positive shin angle and, and if you combine that with acceleration you can get that real feeling of, of of the difference between the two um so yeah from from um from a research perspective on the field um there is very little being done very little um i, I would probably say on, on you know you can count on two fingers i think how many papers have been done uh, there's not much um particularly intervention studies you know which have been done over a four or five six week period um, to, to, to see how well that training intervention is, is transferring to improve deceleration. So that's certainly definitely an area of future research that's needed using some of the, you know, some of the, the, the strategies that we've been talking about to tonight. Um, from a field-based perspective, again, I, I've got it on a continuum from uh, the foundation breaking exercises uh, to developmental and then to the uh, breaking performance exercises. So the, 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 the developmental and the foundation exercises, it could just be doing a, a straight pre-planned horizontal deceleration um, and manipulating the speed at which they start that deceleration or manipulating the distance, what they've got to decelerate over, um, depending on, on the progression of the athlete and where the athlete is. And then as we get to the other side of the continuum, it's very highly chaotic breaking under the specific demands of the competition. So can they then... Uh, use those deceleration qualities in highly specific um, movements such as small-sided games or um, unanticipated rea reactive deceleration drills that you can set up as a as a coach. Um, you know, for example, 1v1 uh, type scenarios or 2v2 type scenarios, uh, and then just building constraints to train force different angles of change of direction. Um, where we can then manipulate the deceleration demands as well of that of that drill. So yeah, that that's um, I think from a field-based perspective, um, you know, very very recommend the uh, band-assisted approaches um, and manipulating the assisted load, which you can do really um, well with band-assisted stuff. But if you want to get really really specific technologies like 1080 sprint offer a real um, precise loading strategy for, for, for deceleration as well as acceleration. So I think that's where you could you can get really powerful assisted and resisted change of direction movements. Um, and you know where, where you could probably see some really good changes in, in your athletes uh, deceleration and change of direction qualities. Um, yeah so that, that that'd be the field base for me. Oh, Damien brings up a really good point because um, really most of the time, again, I, if you're training in a team setting is where it gets, I think, difficult. But to Damien's point, most of us are probably already doing band resisted A marches and A skips and runs. So why not just still keep that band around the waist and, and provide a, a slingshot position or, uh, again, a band assisted and, and overload that, that breaking force? Um, same thing with medicine balls. Most of us are doing medicine ball throws and, and throw to sprint why not use that medicine ball to, to provide an overload on that deceleration, that cut position, um, bullet belts, you know, like a, a release belt. We're probably doing those for sprints and for acceleration. We can still use that for deceleration to again, provide a higher uh, breaking load or breaking impulse, um, put them at, at speeds much above probably what they would test at um, just because they know they have to break. Let's, let's provide them um, those higher forces, those higher speeds um, through, through those implements that we're probably already using anyways. Perfect. Right. Seven minutes left before I let you guys go. Got a couple of questions that have come in. So Ben 
hope it's all right calling me Ben rather than Benjamin. Uh, with regards to monitoring deceleration exposure in training or games for team sport athletes, do you have any thoughts on arbitrary thresholds or individualized based on maximal deceleration effort? I forgot to say, if you've got a question, make sure you let me know who to direct it at. So what I'm going to do is chuck it out there and see if any of you want to tackle that one. Who's going to mute the mic? Unmute the mic even. I'll, I'll chip in on that one, Rob. Okay. It's, it's a question which um, I've heard a lot of people ask recently. So yeah, a good question, Ben. Um, and again, I think it's a really important question um, because obviously we've talked about the forces that we're, we're seeing in deceleration activities. We've talked about the frequency. So it's a really important that we get this uh, monitoring uh, precision and and get it right on an individual basis um the arbitrary thresholds i think is where where i see most of the work at the minute um typically using frequencies above um the high intensity high intensity decelerations above three meters per second squared typically um and, and i think that probably um is you know i don't think it's a bad threshold to be honest but i think as we've started talking about tonight, we, we, we can probably see some decelerations up at eight, nine, 10 meters per second squared, depending on how you measure it. And I think this is the problem with GPS in terms of the differences which GPS devices have got in terms of either quantifying deceleration. Um, and there's it's a, it's a massive black hole really in terms of the differences that are existing at the minute. And how that deceleration count is being counted. So I think that's that's really, really important because I think a lot of the de some of these deceleration counts might not even be occurring during a, a horizontal deceleration, for example. They could be impacts or other movements that the athlete's doing. Um, so I think um, from a relative perspective, um, yeah, I think it would be nice to see some work in that area, but it is really, I think it's a lot harder than acceleration in terms of making it relative to a, a maximal acceleration capacity. Um, so yeah, it's an area which I'm certainly thinking about, but I haven't got the answers to that at the minute of how you'd make it relative. What you could do is do a, a maximal deceleration test and take it off that um, for each athlete. Um, but then it's the, the logistics of having to keep repeating that and making sure that you, you, you know, you've got those values correct throughout the season. So I think it is a difficult one. Maybe the in-situ type profiling uh, that we're seeing with acceleration could be an answer there for the deceleration area as well, in terms of just getting that maximal deceleration from match play and making it relative to that on an individual basis. Um, so yeah, just a couple of options which are in my mind at the minute in that area. Cool. A couple minutes left. I'm going to go with David's question. There's a couple of parts to that, but one thing, it might be a replication of what we've discussed anyway, but I think to, to cover that off specifically would be cool. Uh, to what extent does fatigue influence breaking strategy? And is this tolerance to repeated efforts something you would train with specific deceleration sessions or just leave to the com uh, within a component of the sport practice? Mark, oh, Ted, yes, Ted. Yeah, I'll jump in because Damien said something early that kind of triggered this, and this is specifically with his research around American football versus other sports. Because one of the first things that I've found is a, a huge, huge trend in practical application. When our guys' deceleration numbers, specifically higher deceleration, go down, typically that athlete is in a heightened neuromuscular fatigue state. So when I cross-reference that with our force plate data and everything else, including even subjective stuff just based on sleep, based on fatigue, based on rates of what we're getting there, based on their ratings, I always see the decelerations go down first. And whether it's a one-to-one -one ratio or whatever a typical high-level practice would be for us, if I see that go, I typically find the trend in all the other data points to show the same thing or a similar trend. So the metabolic cost of deceleration we know is high. We know just like throwing, your deceleration forces are going to equivalent to a much, much higher load. They're going to take a lot more. So for us, the energy deficits that you incur through deceleration training are great. That's why more similar to what Mark had said, high, low, high load depends how you're going to measure this. But 
For us, we're not going to go through three sessions in three consecutive days, but we're doing heavy deceleration training. I want our athletes to be as fresh as possible, especially early on in an offseason when we're training the proper mechanics and the proper positioning of that deceleration because we know the metabolic cost is so high. So for us, it's very similar to maxing out. You're not going to go in the gym and max out every single workout. Decelerations cost a lot. They cost a lot metabolically and through energy. So for us, it plays almost the biggest role in where we see our athletes and then how we're going to train them and how we're going to adjust our workloads moving forward after those high deceleration days. Perfect. Mark? Yeah, I'd, I'd say from what we've noticed uh, to the fatigue question, um, as you start to fatigue, I think in a more fresh state, um, when, you, when you see those higher breaking impulses, typically it's a pretty rapid um, drop in, in center mass um, in terms of like the degree angle. As you're more fatigued, you tend to see much more time spent in that early deceleration zone. So it's a much more progressive, uh, you know, lowering of the center mass strategy, much safer strategy. So there's a lot more like, you know, pre-breaking steps before that, that you know, penultimate step, whatever. You see a lot more of, of that type of strategy where they just clearly, whether that it's from a fatigue standpoint and they just can't overcome those, those higher forces because of fatigue or, um, you know, it's just a protective mechanism for them. Um, you know, they'll tend to spend much more time in early deceleration. So that deceleration distance is, is significantly increased. Um, and, and their center of mass isn't, isn't a rapid drop. It's a much more progressive, slower drop in center of mass. Amazing. Good place to finish. And we're bang on the hour as well, according to my, um, according to my PC. So let's end it there. Really appreciate all your time in your respective time zones, middle of the afternoon and and late in the evening for you, Damien. Big thanks to all the questions that came in, Ashley, Ben, David, hopefully we've got to all them and, uh, and, and covered them. But thank you very much, you three. Really appreciate your time. And uh, I'll let you get on with your days. Um, thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to episode 442 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to these guys for joining me and going deep on the topic of deceleration testing and training. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Hytro, Play, Kitman Labs, and Rewire Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it, and look forward to chatting to you next week.